this is your man, Brother G2, National Director of the Journey for Justice Alliance. I'm your host for the On the Ground podcast. You can reach us on Twitter at J4J underscore USA. You can also reach us on our Facebook page at the Journey for Justice Alliance. You can also reach us at our new special website, www.chaseaprivatizerdownthestreet.com. I'm only kind of kidding. All right. Obarigani, Otep, Jumbo, peace. What's happening and what up, though? This is your man once again, Brother G2. Honored to be the host of the On the Ground podcast. This is a growing podcast that is actually centering the artistic science of community organizing. We are lifting up sisters and brothers who are building power to address issues that impact our community every day. And we want to let you all know that there are people all over this country, all over this world, that are building power to address issues that impact our lives every day. One of the biggest weapons of white supremacy is to rob us of hope, to make us believe that there's nothing we can do about the conditions we face. And this is just our little effort to make sure that you know that there are people out there that are swinging and often connecting, right? (laughs) So thank you all for joining us again on another Monday. And I'm honored to have this episode today, which is themed, I Know I Can, because there are some sisters and brothers that are doing work to wage war on the school to prison pipeline. And sometimes we even call it the school to plantation pipeline to really just believe that our young people are much more than what we've been portrayed and that criminalizing our young people is another attribute of white supremacy that we are committed to eradicating from our schools and from our community. I'm really honored to have on our show today, my sister Zakia Sankara Jabbar, who is the national organizer for the Dignity in Schools campaign. And also I have my brother, who I've been swinging it with for a long time, Brother Jonathan Stiff, who is the national director of the Alliance for Education Justice. So I want to say thank you, family, for joining us today on the On the Ground podcast. All right. Excited to be here. So before we jump into what we're doing today, we want to just have our members spotlight. And I want to make sure to give praise to some sisters and brothers that are doing some fantastic work. We ask you to look them up. I want you to just for a minute hear a little bit about a, a dynamic group that is out of Denver, Colorado. Name of the organization is called Breaking Our Chains. The executive director is our brother Hasira Sol Ashimu. And they also have a campaign now called Our Voices, Our Schools. And some of y'all are like, is it black people in Denver? It actually is black people in Denver, Colorado. And it's interesting how we met this brother. We were actually in Denver for a Alliance to Reclaim Our Schools event and we're meeting with the Community Labor Coalition there. And then me and Journey for Justice's national organizer, Sister Roncha Dickerson, went to this restaurant. We found a soul food restaurant. We couldn't believe it. And in this soul food restaurant was this brother, and he was sitting there with a couple of youth, and we looked at each other and we nodded. You know how it is when you go somewhere where it's not a lot of you, right? Everybody knows about the nod. So we gave the the brother the nod, and then we went to the rally. He was speaking at the rally. And it was like 2,000 people out, you know, talking about dump Betsy DeVos. So me and Roger made sure we met the brother. And then we began to spend time with him and learned a lot about his organization. 
I actually visited his organization and he had a dynamic group of black and brown youth that were organizing to begin to expand community schools and to stop the school to prison pipeline in Denver, Colorado. Because even though black youth are only 4% of the population in the city of Denver, Colorado, they make up over 35% of the discipline referrals. So he was just laying out the fact that our young people are targeted in this system and they're doing serious work to stop it. I wanna make sure you all know that the campaign to expand sustainable community schools is growing across the country. And they just won a powerful campaign to win Discovery School, which is a middle school in Denver, Colorado as a sustainable community school. And their goal is to create a sustainable community school zone, pre-K through 12th grade in this neighborhood where many of the African-American students attend school. So again, proud of this brother and the work that they do. I want everybody to please give a salute to Breaking Our Chains and the Our Voices, Our Schools campaign. That is our j for j member spotlight. All right, so now I would like to introduce you to two people I have a great deal of respect for, I've done a lot of work with, and um, think that these people are critical to the education justice movement. A lot of things have happened because of their work. And I'm really honored that they could join us today. So first, I want to ask my sister Zakia, if you could please introduce yourself and just explain a little bit about the Dignity in Schools campaign and the work that you do there. So I'm Zakia Sankara Jabbar. I'm currently working as a national field organizer with the Dignity in Schools campaign, which is a national coalition of 105 members in 26 states, including the District of Columbia. And our focus is to end the school to prison pipeline as we know it in the United States. I also am the co-founder of a parent-led, parent-organizing organization based in Ohio called Racial Justice Now. They recently launched a chapter in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, focusing in Montgomery County, Maryland as well. So uh, wear a couple of different hats. But that's my main work is with Dignity in Schools campaign. Thank you, dear sister. Now, Zakia, you know, it's from Dayton, Ohio. Zakia got a lot of hood in her. But Zakia is actually featured in a cartoon that is spreading all over the Internet that is going against the school to prison pipeline. Can you let people know a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, that was a really fun project. I was on a show on True TV called Adam Ruins Everything. And my part of that particular show, which was actually focusing on policing, my part was discussing particularly police in schools. And so uh, they did an animation of me, which I thought was really cool. And I did the voiceover maybe about eight or nine months ago and had totally forgot about, you know, that the show was going to be airing sometime this fall until one of our colleagues reached out to me, Natasha Capers. <laughs> she hit me up on Instagram like, I just saw you on TV. And I'm like, what? You know, and, <laughs> I had totally forgot I did it because we actually don't have cable. We don't have television at home. And so anyway... I reached back out to True TV uh, to my contact, and I was able to get access to that episode. DSC uploaded it to our YouTube page so that our members could actually use it in the work. Because when it aired, a couple of our members emailed us like, uh, "So where, like, when can, can we use this? Like, where can we get a copy of this?" And I felt bad because you know this is my first time, you know, kind of dealing with 
TV, you know, that's not the news. You know, you and I did Democracy Now! together, but I had, yes, I ma'am. don't know about like TV contracts and stuff. So I didn't realize that I should have negotiated up front having access to that episode. But thankfully, mm-hmm. everything worked out without a problem, really just gave us access, you know, to the episode because it'll eventually end up on Netflix anyway. So, yeah. but anyway, yeah. it's a really cool show. Folks should check it out. You can yeah. also go to uh, Dignity in Schools campaign YouTube page, and it's up there as well. I brought that up joking, but the serious piece, sister, is that things like that, that you know, we may not think are a big deal, will go a long way towards educating people on, you know, what is the school to prison pipeline and understand, you know, what is the problem with the policing in schools, right? So I think you did an excellent job. I just wanted to give you a chance to say a little something about that. If you could, before we, we talk to my brother, just explain, I met you as an as a co-founder of Racial Justice Now out of Dayton, Ohio, and I've heard many times the story of how you got activated. Can you share that with our audience a little bit? So I actually got involved uh, in this preschool to prison pipeline work, right, from my perspective, uh, when my my then three-year-old son was being uh, identified for expulsion. It was a private preschool uh, in the Dayton area. And just to make a long story short, I mean, just intuit, I wasn't politicized, right? Like, I didn't have all the language. I didn't even know that there was a such thing as a preschool to prison pipeline. I knew just intuitively what was happening to my son wasn't right. And I did not trust, right? That's the biggest thing. And I, I talk to parents all the time. There's a lot of time there's not trust between sometimes the teachers and, and parents, especially when the teachers are not reflective of the community. And so I just remember I didn't trust the things and just the language that they were using about my three-year-old baby and the adjective they were using to describe him, which is very problematic. And so I did not agree, you know, with uh, them, you know, trying to identify him already as ADHD and all of these other kinds of things. He was just too young. The other thing uh, is that I had a hard time even getting him into the school. The school had a waiting list. Um, They made it very clear that they only took so many, quote unquote, of Title 20 cases. And for folks who don't know what Title 20 is, it's a government subsidy for parents who are working class or, you know, if you're going to school full time and working and you meet the economic threshold, you can get support with child care for your child. And so that was the program that I was enrolled in at the time that would help to pay for his care at that facility. And I remember dealing with the receptionist who was very rude at the time. You know, she made sure that I knew that, you know, there was only so many of our kind, basically, you know, in that school. And so that whole experience really helped to politicize where I am now. You know, it helped for me do a lot of deep study at the first book. And I talk about this in the Lift Us Up book, but the first book that I read, because I was also in college at the time, Wright State University, I uh, picked up a copy of uh, Dr. Joanza Kajufu's Countering the, the Conspiracy to Destroy Black Boys, which his first volume was written, I think, in like 1983. Keep in mind, this was 2011. And everything in that book was almost the exact same as the way he was describing what was happening in our schools in 1983. And so when I read that book, for me, it was a liberating experience because what I experienced is what many Black parents in this country experience is that you you experience feelings of 
unworthiness. You think that, you know, because the schools have a good job of uh, asking you, well, what's going on at home? So you sometimes you internalize that there is something pathological about you, your community, your child, and you think that everything is wrong with you. And so that that book and uh, many others, you know, and just obviously so I began to organize as well. I started organizing other Black mamas right there at that school, almost right. immediately. And so, as they say, the rest is history. And so we have continued to organize. The work is still happening in Dayton. In fact, this is also the Dignity in Schools campaign week of action this week. And um, the Dayton chapter just released another school discipline report card. There was a soft launch they had at a school board event in Dayton last night. So the work is still going. And yeah. The struggle continues, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> well, sister, our heart goes out that, you know, your son was put in that situation that you had to go through that. But our work has been strengthened that you were part of it. I think that you you are, you know, a force to be reckoned with. I remember when you became the national organizer for Dignity in Schools. And I think it's, it's uh, again, a credit to your determination that you didn't let that stop you and that you actually turned that into fuel like you say, to get politicized and then to get activated and organized. So thank That's you right. for sharing that with us, Queen. Thank you very much. Let's turn to my brother, Jonathan Stiff. I've known brother Jonathan for many moons, as they say, since maybe 2006, 2007. We all came together and formed the Alliance of Education Justice. So brother Jonathan, why don't you say a little bit about AEJ and, you know, your work and how you got to be, the, you know, just the work you all do and the work you do as the national director. I'm the national director of the Alliance for Educational Justice. AEJ is a national network of 30 uh, intergenerational and youth-led groups that have been working many for 20 plus years to end the phenomenon that we call the school to prison pipeline. We came together particularly in 2008 at the start of the Obama administration I in a, an opportunity to shift federal policy and practice away from punitive discipline. Also, what was happening too at that time was also the reauthorization of uh, No Child Left Behind. And so for many of the groups at the time, I was leading a, a youth organizing group in D.C. called the Youth Education Alliance. And so many of us, uh, when we would get to the table of power to negotiate Oftentimes, we would be told that the reason why they had to discriminate against Black kids was because federal policy said so. And so we saw an opportunity, us all having kind of a collective realization that we've been told the same things, saw an opportunity to, to really change the direction of federal policy or federal practice, the role of the Department of Education. And so the Alliance was really born out of trying to take advantage of that particular moment. And our work has evolved from, one, remembering times when we would talk about a school-to-prison pipeline and we would be told uh, that we were crazy, we didn't know what we were talking about, that thing didn't exist, to having uh, the president, President Obama at the time, to talk about the school-to-prison pipeline. And I think what was important is that it came out in the conversation around Trayvon Martin and how Trayvon Martin's murder by the hands of George Zimmerman was connected to the school-to-prison pipeline because he had been given his third out-of-school suspension that had led to his mom making the decision that he needed a new start in a new school district and, you know, sent him to go to stay with his father. And so 
For us, there was a very clear connection between kind of the state violence and the extrajudicial violence that Black people were facing, Black youth were facing out in the streets, that it was also happening in our schools and that we there needed to be a, a fight and young people had to be at the front of that fight and to be the voice of that fight. And so that's how we have been moving for these last, through that administration, and then these last couple of years since 2015, we've been really looking at the issue of uh, police and schools, particularly many of our members, the young people that make up the alliance were really moved to action when they saw the assault at Spring Valley in 2015, when they saw the video of Shakara being choked and slammed in a desk by uh, then school resource officer, Ben Fields, who was known in the school as Officer Slam, and to find out that the young woman, the courageous young woman, Naya Kenny, at 16 years old, had recorded that incident and actually had also then intervened to stop the brutality, was then arrested and charged with felony disturbing education. Young people in the Alliance were really moved. And that led us into really looking at the issue of assaults or assault acts, which we define as any time a school police officer hurts a student for any reason. We know these events are racialized. It is, it is always our children who are the ones who are being abused and brutalized by uh, school police and resources. And our work became even more important after Parkland, as we saw kind of, again, this knee-jerk reaction from state and local governments and federal government to provide more money for policing, even though the the white kids from Parkland were not calling for more police, but our schools get flooded with more police. And we know that comes at a cost to the quality of education and then also to the safety of our young folk in the schools. Teach. And I think AEJ has done an, an amazing job of really bringing to the public consciousness about how common these assaults are. I don't know if you all have any information on this, but I know that there was just a little sister in Benton Harbor, Michigan, that was assaulted by a school resource officer. And this has been all over the internet. I don't know the little sister's name. I'm actually going to Benton Harbor in the next two weeks. Uh, sister Marletta Seats is setting up a meeting with uh, parents around not only the school to prison pipeline work, but also the issue of school closings in Benton Harbor. But this has been happening all over the country. And when our young people are in schools where often grown men feel empowered to brutalize children, it lets you know that there is a value system problem that's mm-hmm. operating in public schools. If there is a lens that our children are seen through that does not consider them children, but considers them offenders and inmates. And so I would ask if you all, just based on your expertise, can just share with our audience what would be your definition of the school to prison pipeline? For us, uh, the school to prison pipelines are the sets of uh, kind of laws, policies, and practices that uh, criminalize black and oppress youth in their classroom and push them into criminalization and, so, and really just actually just criminalizes them right there on the spot. And then that has a wide variety of, of impacts in terms of the quality education and then all the kind of domino effects that happens from when our young people don't receive their human right to a quality education. Teach. I just want people to think about this. Again, some people still try to say that there is no school to prison pipeline. We know, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this is based off my reading and my memory, that Black children are suspended at six times the rate as their white counterparts 
for the same offenses. Is that accurate? In some places, yes. I think the national average, uh, because of all the work that we've done together, right, has actually gone down from, I believe it was 3.4% to 3%. And the reason why I'm quoting that is because I think I did a presentation in Savannah, Georgia in August, and that was the latest data that we got from the CDRC at the federal level. Now, in some states and even in some, like, school districts themselves, six times the rate is accurate. Now for black girls, it is six times the rate as white girls. And I don't know if that was the one you were thinking about. That's the national average for black girls as far as suspensions and expulsions are concerned. They are actually six times more likely to be suspended or expelled than white girls. And this issue is tentacles stretch out and it applies to so many parts of our young people's schooling. One thing that could be connected to is the, the loss of Black teachers in the United States. And we know that's that right. white teachers are more likely to call security. They're less likely to recommend Black students for gifted programs and, you know, more likely to call their behavior, you know, violent as opposed to just childlike behavior. But and we you know also what? know. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. I, I'm sorry. I was. I just. I got another lived experience to share, and it's one that I'm actually going through uh, right now. And it's it's to the point that you just made, brother G2. I am a living witness that having black teachers, other teachers of color as well, in some cases, and black administrators absolutely matters. So, you know, I talked about my then three year old son you know, I want to give an update on him, right? You know, Amir is brilliant. My son is brilliant. And one of the things that usually happens to young Black boys who are energetic, but are also brilliant is that sometimes, you know, if the families and parents are not vigilant, those children can be labeled and put into emotional disturbance classes or, you know, oppositional divines classes and, you know, being mislabeled when they're actually gifted students and they need to be challenged more. And the reason why I bring this up is I was actually uh, just in Oakland last week and I got a call from uh, my son's assistant principal, who was a black woman. And she mentioned to me that Amir had received one of the highest scores in the school on the English test. You know, everything is about testing. I know we're going to talk about that, too. But, you know, everything is about testing. But she said he needs to be challenged and we're going to put him in the gifted and advanced English course. And so I wanted to get your permission because it's going to shake up his schedule. And Go ahead. Go ahead. I said, wow. I said, this would have never happened because he's still, Amir, if I'm honest, he still struggles because, and, you know, Dr. Pedro de Guerra and other folks um, talk about black male learning styles, you know, in their writings and things. And so he still struggles sometimes when he's bored in class. But the boredom is because he's not being challenged. And many times white teachers don't see the brilliance. All they see is the behavior. And the teachers that he have here in Montgomery County, Maryland, he's in middle school now, he's in seventh grade, have just been wonderful. He's he's not been suspended one time in Montgomery County, Maryland. And I actually can't believe it. He was suspended. And when we were in Dayton, at least once a year, at least at the Mm -hmm. very minimum. And it was always for those kinds of things. So I just really wanted to give another lived experience, you know, from my own 
you know, experience about the difference that you have when you have Black administrators and Black teachers, because a lot of times it's the teachers that's making the referral in the system to the principals. And he's not getting referred hardly ever because we I've built a relationship and there's a spirit of collaboration. Also, the principal is a, a father of three boys himself, which I think helps. And, you know, he, he's just been very collaborative. And so I, I just wanted to give another testimony that black teachers and black administrators absolutely matter. Teach. And, and Amir is brilliant. And I, I want you all to just don't miss the point to our audience that we don't often hear black children referred to as brilliant and our children are brilliant. And that's often because of who sits in front of them. And if they're seen through a lens that does not understand and doesn't care to understand or seek to understand what makes our young people tick, then they may see behavior and based off their prejudices, figure that that behavior is misbehaving or or being defiant as my sister is saying. But that lens, this is not just something that happens in middle school or and Zakia just talked about Amir's experience as a, as a three-year-old. But we see now school districts that are suspending kindergartners. I mean, putting kindergartners, black primarily, kindergartners in handcuffs. And I just want to see, you know, lift up two examples of community organizing and why community organizing works. And again, we define community organizing as working with the people directly impacted to strategize and build power to address quality of life issues. Community organizing is not activism. Um, They're very different. As we know, activism, which is important and needed, is when an individual lifts their voice up on an issue that they choose. But community organizers have to find out what people care about and then help them build strategy and then power to address those issues. So community organizers must be able to move people. And in two places, we've seen dynamic examples, and these are just the two that I know of. In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the organization 1PA organized and won a kindergarten through second grade band. And it was hard fought. The school district fought them tooth and nail. I just want you to think about this. A school district fighting you to stop you from suspending five and six-year-olds. And then in Dayton, Ohio, you all accomplished something to me, which is even more miraculous, because you won a kindergarten through third grade ban in a Republican state legislature. Can you share a little bit, sister, about that? I learned a lot in that process, Brother G2, because, you know, I'm coming straight from a parent's perspective and what's right and wrong. You know, that's how we're raised. That's, you know, I feel like black people are some of the most moral people in the world. So we we come with this morality lens a lot of times. And and I tell you, I learned something through that political process because I thought, well, got the data right. We've done the work. And now we have the empirical evidence because we have a group of parents who sat down and met with our state senator, Peggy Laner, who is the person that that carried the bill for us. She's a Dayton area Republican, but she also chairs the Senate Education Committee. And so it just was a recipe, I guess, for the right things to happen because we were her also her constituents, right? She met with us several times in our community, right, on our side of town. The way the districts are drawn in Ohio is is ridiculous, but that's another story, which is how, you know, she ended up being our representative. But she met with us several times, and 
I, again, didn't trust her at first, right? Because, you know, it's politics. She has an R, not a D next to her name. But at the end of the day, I had to go with the lead of my parents. And so from the parents' perspective in our community, they didn't want to really play politics. They didn't care whether she was a Republican or a Democrat. She had power. And so she was the one that we needed to target. She was the one who could move what we needed to move. And we were actually pleasantly surprised because she diligently took notes <laughs> all the times that she met with us and she had her staff follow up. Now, it took us several years to get it done, but I'll tell you what she did each year. And her staff would stay in contact with us. She said, I'm not going to be able to get it done this year, but I'm going to bring it back next year. And I'll tell you the first time I heard that I was crushed, several of our parents cried because what it said to us was that here's another year that we're going to have where Black children, especially preschool and kindergarten, because in Ohio, Black boys were overwhelmingly represented as the vast majority, almost eight to one, getting kicked out of preschool. Almost eight to one. It was ridiculous, the numbers. And so several of our parents, including me, cried because we thought this is the right thing to do. Damn, you got the stories. You got the data. Y'all can't think this is okay. And I learned about the political process and that it honestly, it really isn't about what's right all the time. It's about all, all these other things that don't matter to regular everyday people. But what I can say about Senator Lander, and she may not be good on all the issues, so I'm not trying to you know, make her out into a saint. I'm only telling our story and telling yeah. it from a, a perspective that it actually happened, right? Each year, she would bring it back, and we would have, we would again have to rent vans, drive up from Dayton to Columbus, and have our parents come in from Cincinnati and other parts of the state, even Zanesville, which is a rural part of Ohio, Southeast Ohio, you know, our Black parents was catching hell down there too, sometimes worse than we was in the city. But we would bring our folks together and go back to the interested party meetings. At the interested party meetings, a lot of times we were the only, literally the only Black people in the room. Because if the Ohio Education Association staff wasn't Black, you know, or OFT, the Ohio School Boards Association. I mean, we really were the only ones in there. And our parents spoke up every single time. And you could tell that the professional staff was uncomfortable even with our presence. They weren't used to that. But Senator Lanner made sure that we were there. And our input actually mattered. And so to make a long story short, we didn't get everything we wanted in that bill because, as you mentioned, it's, it's a Republican legislature. Ohio is pretty solidly red uh, now. It has been probably for about the last 15 to 18 years because of how they've drawn the districts. So we had a Republican House, a Republican Senate, and at that time it was Governor Casey. He's the one that signed the bill. He was on his way out. Uh, governor DeWine is the new governor now who was to the right of Kasich. So thankfully, we got that bill under uh, Governor Kasich. But it took us several years to get that done because of politics and, and just how things go. But I'll tell you this quick story and, and I'll let you move on. There was one person, I'll never forget him, State Representative or State Senator Cole Cooley. And he was from some hick town in Ohio, but he would always be the main one on the committee holding it up. He would block it every single year. And I remember that final year, Senator Lanner actually called me herself. She says, the kid, he is retiring from the Senate. He's going to run for county commission, and I think we're going to get it done next year. <laughs> and we did. And the, the, it was one person. That's I mean, you know, so I learned, mm -hmm. I say all that to say that 
you know, when the people who are directly impacted are allowed to step into their power and actually be taken seriously and listened to, we really do have the power to make the change that we want to do. The other thing that I want to add um, really quickly that I'm proud of, and, and I'm proud of our colleagues, the ACLU of Ohio and Children's Defense Fund, but I, I have to be honest, we, we had to push them. Even they didn't want to go as far as the ban. So it literally was grassroots parents Black parents, I got to be specific, Black parents, working class, poor from across the state of Ohio that pushed that bill. And we happen to have a sympathetic white Republican woman who listened to us. Her son happens to be a teacher and she happens to be, I guess, just a sensible person on education issues. That's the only way I can explain Mm -hmm. it. Absolutely. But I also think the way that you developed your leaders had a lot to do with it as well, because when your leaders made their way into those spaces, they made the case. That's you know right. what I mean? And so and this, this speaks again to the power of organizing. This part of it is making sure that people directly impacted have the information that, that they need and they're able to do the analysis that sharpens their political sword so that when they go in places, they can actually speak to the issues and they don't need to be parroted. They don't need us to speak for them. They just need to be given the support to be able to realize their own power. So I'm going to say again, sister, congratulations on that big work. And we're not telling these stories, you know, for our audience, for entertainment value. Those of you that are listening and you you see something that you may want to do, whether it's fighting against school closings, whether it's advocating for community schools, whether it's getting a community benefits agreement around a development that's coming. When you listen to the On the Ground podcast, you will hear people that have actually won those battles. And that means that you have resources that you can reach out to and say, well, how do we do this? You know, how how do we stop a school board from shutting down our schools? And you, you actually have, as a living resource, people who have done that work. So thank you, sister, for that story and just, you know, for your courage and your determination in making that happen. But again, I don't want people to forget. Just think about it. People are so blinded by their own prejudice that they actually think it's okay to do that to human beings. So again, sister, I want to just say salute to that big piece of work and the contribution that you all are making to the education justice movement. I'd like to shift gears for a second. And Jonathan, you know, like you said, the work at AJ, a lot of the work, local work is addressing issues that are happening in schools, uh, in our communities. You've had young people that have actually won implementing restorative justice practices in schools. So, Jonathan, can you just share with our audience what is restorative justice and maybe one of your stories around where people have fought for and won those types of practices in schools? Restorative justice is what young people are pushing for as an alternative to the punitive discriminatory discipline that they currently receive. And so restorative justice kind of on its basis is, you know, engaging both uh, those who were harmed and those who did the harm in a process that repairs the damage that it was done and also helps potentially repair the relationship between two or more folk or whoever was kind of involved in the harm. And so that's restorative justice kind of defined. And then it's a set of practices in Really, it's a philosophy and a way of living and educating that says that our our first response is not going to be punitive, that it is going to be developmental, that it is going to 
we're going to use this as a teaching moment. It can involve a, a lot of practices from kind of morning circles to uh, restorative practices or restorative when there has been uh, harm done in the school situation to even thinking about the setup of the physical environment of a school all can lend into creating an environment that makes students feel welcome and supported. And I think the best way I can can really capture the spirit of, of restorative justice is a quote from a rethinker who we lost around 2014, George Carter III from Rethink, when he talked about imagining schools that had mood detectors instead of metal detectors, that had strawberry gardens instead of in-school suspensions. And if if you can understand that and feel that, then you can understand what young people are saying when they say restorative justice and what they mean and what they're expecting. And George was with Rethink out of New Orleans, Louisiana, and and they're still doing fantastic work. Mm-hmm. around, you know, stopping, interrupting the school-to-prison pipeline. And just so folks, you know, catch everything my brother said. So restorative justice is not a program. It's a culture. And so, again, what is the climate in the school? The young people walk in the room, the metal detectors, is somebody greeting them at the door saying, you know, it's good to see you today, how you doing? Or somebody saying, put your bag on this conveyor belt and, you know, hurry up and come through. And that's part of the culture. Another part of the culture is, are young people involved in decision-making at the school? Are there opportunities for young people to talk about what they go through every day as part of the education process? If there's harm done, instead of suspensions, can young people have peace circles? Or some people call them restorative circles, where, as Jonathan said, you can remedy the harm that's been done and restore the relationship to good standing. And then also you have things like peer juries where young people come together and if there's been a violation, they can actually come together and come up with a humane way for the young person to restore themselves to good standing in the school. We know that police do not make schools safer. We know that restorative justice practices when engaged as a culture work, you see a reduction in suspensions, a dramatic reductions in arrests. You also see increase in student attendance. And that is a prerequisite for young people actually doing better academically. You see across the board that when schools have very high attendance rates consistently, that you also see academic achievement. So these things are important to create a culture where young people are treated as the brilliant souls that they are. So thank you, Brother Jonathan. I appreciate that. And I'm going to come back to you to say a little bit about this. As I said, community organizing is about building power. And part of that is making sure that your agenda is on the agenda of those who make decisions. And so there's a lot of work happening now. And I have an announcement for everybody at the end, but I'm not going to tell you yet. But there's a lot of work happening right now to make sure that whoever's going to be the next president of the United States has education justice from our perspective. Right. That's talking about education equity. It's talking about making sure that resources are distributed equitably. That's making sure the young people that, that are black, brown, and indigenous have an equitable access to resources, opportunity that any other child in this country has. So, Jonathan, you all are doing some interesting work right now around the presidential election, not endorsing a candidate, but making sure whoever runs has, you know, AEJ's agenda at the top of theirs. So can you explain a little bit about the work that you all are doing? 
around presidential candidates. We just released what we're calling a youth mandate for presidential candidates to permanently dismantle the school to prison and the school to deportation pipeline. And we did this work with our allies over at the Center for Popular Democracy and the youth organizing groups that they have over there. And really what we have witnessed these last three years under the Trump DeVos administration has been a complete uh, reversal of everything that Black and oppressed young people fought for and won in terms of the federal guidance that was stripped away using the death of the students at Parkland as a cover to do that. We've seen the young people continue to see and feel the snatching away of public education and the private takeover of schools like in New Orleans. And so the mandate has been signed by over 150 youth organizations from across the country, all kind of getting behind young people's call for to fund education out of incarceration, to restore and to strengthen the civil rights of students, and to uplift public education and in the private takeover of schools. And we believe that this mandate is something that, again, young people all across the country are already organizing uh, to win or have been winning in their communities. And it calls on the presidential candidates to really hear young people won't have a vote in the election, but whose lives uh, depend on actions around from the federal uh, Department of Education in terms of being able to, again, safeguard education and, and make sure to ensure that young people receive the kind of education that they deserve. And what we've experienced the last eight years is, is that, and even before that is that, and what we know now after the last eight years is that the federal Department of Education has tremendous influence can shape the education agenda and work of state and local governments and providing more opportunity, uh, more access to students and rights and to quality education. And so this mandate is really to, to try to lift that up and lift up the voices of young people and say, this is what they want. And it's most important. I think it's also uh, really key because what we saw the day after the election was millions of young people walking out of their schools in protest. And so mm-hmm. it doesn't feel that far-fetched that then the administration's response to that would be to flood it with police mm-hmm. and to further harden it and make it prisons and then take away any chance of any kind of democracy or uh, kind of community control or community voice in the kind of education that they want to see. I think it reflects uh, the times and and the direction that the country is going in. And we believe that if we can transform schools, we can transform society. So the youth mandate is is bigger than the schools. Uh, It's bigger than the RJ circle. It's really about uh, really a fight for our rights and young people really fighting for their lives in Mm. in a lot of ways. And, And brother, so that's some excellent work. And as we know, three presidential candidates, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and forgive me, the presidential candidate out of Texas, the Latino man. Oh, goodness. Forgive me, listeners. I'm having a middle age moment. But we have three presidential candidates that have actually put in their platforms guidelines to stop the school to prison pipeline. Now, when I say that, I don't say that like, you know, our savior has arrived. We know as organizers that we are committed to building the people power to hold whoever becomes president accountable for their education policy. 
But I just wanted you to lift that work up because it's important for young people to cement themselves as a voice that needs to be heard, whether they are voting age or not. So again, brother, congratulations on that big work. And you know that you have J4J support wherever you go. And I do want to say this before I move forward, that Jonathan Stiff has been essential to the creation of the Journey for Justice Alliance. The two individuals I always lift up when they ask, well, how did J4J get started? And I always talk about Zakia Ansari making that initial phone call to me in 2012, saying how isolated she felt, and then sitting down with Jonathan with AEJ and saying, you know, who are the youth organizations that want to fight against school privatization? And us to bring in that to AEJ early on in, in AEJ's development. And actually, you know, many of those youth organizations joined the Journey for Justice Alliance. That was really critical to us getting started. So I just want to say something to our audience. Those of us who, you know, fashion themselves progressive, I hope that you, we are listening to what our guests are laying out. Zakia talked earlier about how she had to push the ACLU and other allies that are progressive around this issue. Because too often, as progressives, it's very easy to get arrogant and think that if you tolerate us, that means that you're with us. But when they're asking to be tolerated, you know, if you build a multiracial coalition, it's very important that the voices of everyone and their coalition is heard, even if it makes you uncomfortable, even if it challenges your belief. That's not the point. The point is, if you're going to work with people from oppressed communities, then you must embrace the issues from the lens that they see, not through the lens that you see. Because if you don't have that lived experience, then you can't have clarity. You have to get clarity from the people directly impacted. I'm going to step out on a limb here. And um, I'm not saying that we need to change what we call it. But I I want to offer just a perspective. What we're confronted with is is even worse than the school-to-prison pipeline. Many of us in Journey for Justice call it the school-to-plantation pipeline because we know the 13th Amendment, the place where people can be held against their will and being forced to work for free, are prisons. We know that the United States imprisons more people than any other nation on the planet Earth. And I just want to give you all a sense of how locking up Black and brown people is big business. And the setup of that big business starts when young people are in pre-K, elementary school, middle school. This is just a short list of the companies who invest in prisons. Whole Foods. So when you get your tilapia from Whole Foods and you feel like you're getting it from a sustainable American family farm, it was actually raised by prisoners in Colorado who are making those products for prisons. When you get your goat cheese, the same same thing. From Whole Foods, it comes from private prisons. McDonald's, Walmart, Victoria's Secret, sorry ladies, AT&T, BP, British Petroleum, right? Bank of America, Bayer, Aspen, Cargill, Caterpillar, Chevron, Chrysler, Costco, John Deere, Eli Lilly and Company, ExxonMobil, GlaxoSmithKline, Johnson & Johnson, Kmart, Coke Industries, Merck, Microsoft, Motorola, Nintendo, Pfizer, Procter & Gamble, Pepsi, Conagra Foods, Shell, Starbucks, UPS, Verizon, Walmart, Wendy's, and I can go on. But that gives you a sense that 
the incarceration of our young people is big business. And we have to realize that the school to prison pipeline is not just about people not liking our young people, but there is an aim to looking at third grade test scores and determining whether or not it'd be profitable to build prisons in certain areas. That there is a aim to our young people being criminalized in schools. So those of us who fashion ourselves progressives should reach out after hearing this podcast to Dignity in Schools, to the Alliance for Education Justice, and to Journey for Justice to say, well, how can I get involved? How can I support this fight? Because it's serious, because that says who our values are. You know, we lost a giant this week when uh, the Honorable Elijah Cummings made his transition to the ancestors. And during the Michael Cohen hearings, he gave a moving speech as he was chairing the committee. And his point was, we're better than this as Americans. He said, we are better than this. And with all respect to our ancestors, I I want to disagree that we're not better than this. This is who we are. And the work that you're hearing about should provide us a mirror to look at ourselves. Like Donald Trump is not an anomaly. He's a mirror that is making America see itself. So for folks that are like enraged at who Donald Trump is, we should be more enraged in who we've allowed ourselves to become as a country. With that, I want to say thank you all very much. Asante Sana, I appreciate you all spending the time with us today on the On The Ground podcast. And very quickly, just share, if people want to reach you, Zakia, and then you, Jonathan, how can they get in touch with Dignity in Schools and with AJ? Absolutely. Uh, DignityInSchools.org. Follow us on social media at Dignity in School, no S uh, for Twitter, but for Facebook, Dignity in Schools with an S, and also on Instagram, Dignity in Schools with an S. Folks can also email me, just Zakia, Z-A-K-I-Y-A, at DignityInSchools.org. Thank you, sister. Brother Jonathan? Absolutely. People can uh, find us on uh, line on Facebook at the number four, Ed Justice. Uh, and then we want people to go to the website, wecametolearn.com. That's the name of our report on school policing, um, where they can find kind of all the data around uh, the impact of school policing, as well as uh, what we call the seven Ds, which are the uh, kind of strategies that groups are using to fight police presence, and also uh, our toolkit that's stocked with uh, workshops, political ed tools for communities trying to, one, respond to incidents of school police brutality, as well as to, you know, educate and engage parents and uh, constituents around the issue of policing. So that's wecametolearn.com and online and on social media for Ed Justice, the number four, Ed and Justice. All right. Gratitude to both of you. And if, again, if you want to reach us at the Journey for Justice Alliance, you can always, you know, catch us at AJ, the number four, J underscore USA. You can reach us on Facebook, uh, just Journey for Justice Alliance. You can reach us on MySpace. No, I'm just kidding. We ain't got no MySpace no more. But look, before we go, to me, easily one of the five greatest MCs that has ever lived is straight out of Queens, New York, Nasir Jones better known as Nas. Nas has been honored 
at Harvard University, where his lyrics are courses of study. He has told the story of being young, Black in America through the lens of one, a young child that looks and sees what he sees in his community, growing up to the fact now he's a father and a man who comes with a street smarts, but also a consciousness that uh, lifts people up and tells our story in an inspiring way. And his song that I want to make sure there's a theme of what we do today is an amazing song called I Know I Can. And it is a song of encouragement to young people to say that you are greater than this system may say you are. You are beautiful, you are giants, and realize your brilliance. So we're going to close our show out today with I Know I Can. Nah. All right, peace. See y'all again on the ground. B, B, boys and girls, listen up. You can be anything in the world, and God we trust. An architect, doctor, maybe an actress, but nothing comes easy. It takes much practice, like I met a woman who's becoming a star. She was very beautiful, leaving people in awe. Singing songs, Lena Horn, but the younger version hung with the wrong person. Got a strong one at her when cocaine, sniffing up drugs, all in the nose. Could have died so young, now looks ugly and old. No fun, cause now when she reaches for hugs, people hold their breath. Cause she smells of corrosion and death. Watch the company you keep and the crowd you bring Cause they came to do drugs and you came to sing So if you're gonna be the best, I'ma tell you how Put your hand in the air and take the vow I know I can, I know I can. Be, what I wanna be. be what I wanna be If I work hard at it, I'll be where I wanna be Listen again. This is for grown looking girls who's only 10. The ones who watch videos and do what they see. As cute as can be. Up in the club with fake ID. Careful, for you meet a man with HIV. You can host a TV like Oprah Winfrey. Whatever you decide, be careful. Some men be rapists, so act your age. Don't pretend to be older than you are. Give yourself time to grow. You're thinking he can give you wealth, but so young boys. You can use a lot of help, you know. You're thinking life's all about smoking weed and ice. You don't want to be my age and can't read and write. Begging different women for a place to sleep at night Smart boys turn them in and do whatever they wish If you believe you can achieve, then say it like this I know I can, I know I can. Be, what I be. be what I wanna be If I work hard at it, I work hard at it. I'll be where I wanna be, I be, where I wanna now, be. I'll go. I know I can